Welcome to Mall Top Now, a podcast about taking action. In Mall Top Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. This is Sprout. And this is Sherry Ann. And we are the hosts of Molotov Now on the Channel Zero Podcast Network. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the podcast. If you like what we do here and want to support it, you can do that by going to linktree backslash AL1312 and clicking donate or scrolling to the bottom for Patreon. Sorry for the delay in releasing this episode. We had some difficulty in scheduling one of the interviews for today, and we felt it was worth holding off until we got it and could pull it all together for you. Unfortunately, we have been unable to get in touch with our contact in the West Bank, so that interview will have to wait. Today's episode is still very special to us, as we will be talking about Palestine and the many historical and modern struggles faced by the people there. Today we have on Brian Bean, co-editor of the book Palestine, A Socialist Introduction, to talk with us about the history of the struggle for socialist liberation in Palestine and the surrounding Arab world. It's taken a lot to put this episode together, but we know it's worth it in the end for the discussions that we need to have around what's going on in Palestine right now. When we return, we will be covering upcoming events and recent news. But first, a message from our sponsor. We will never ever surrender or compromise! We occupied government buildings, we blockaded highways, and we talked about not just marching, but direct action to shut this shit down. Here we go the Lord. Why we say no more? we invite you to join us for Indigenous Action, a podcast where we dig deep into critical issues impacting our communities in the occupied lands known as the so-called United States or what many people recognize as Turtle Island. This is an autonomous, anti-colonial broadcast with unapologetic and claws-out analysis towards total liberation. So take your seat by this fire and may the bridges we burn together light our way. Find us at indigenousaction.org and with the Channel Zero Network. From the good folks at Sabotage Noise Productions, we have a list of upcoming radical shows and benefits.
in Aberdeen on January 13th at the Parkway Tavern, 417 North Park Street. There will be a benefit show for the Black Flower Collective featuring the Takeover Music Collective, Seven to Panther, Mojo Barnes, Soul the Interrogator, Monster Illicit, Angie Stacks, and Ready Ron Beats. In Bremerton at the Chuck, 333 North Callow Avenue, on February 2nd at 8 p.m., there will be Conjuring Up Monsters, Baptation, and Void Preacher. In Olympia at the Mortuary, January 11th, All You Need Is Kill. February 4th, Sunday Wire Spine, Ring Finger, and Static Ghost. February 9th, Friday Storm Boy, Dead Streets, and TBA. February 10th, Catastrophic Cabaret, a lovely variety show. In Tacoma at the Gravel Pit, February 25th, Chloe Defector, Stink Animal, and the Bad Smells. At the Solidarity Center in Tacoma, at 1220 South 23rd Street, bi-weekly, there's a Feed the People with Black Panther Park. To host radical events at this new community space, check out patreon.com backslash Hilltop Solidarity Center or email hilltopsolidarity at proton.me. And finally, in Seattle, at Left Bank Books at 92 Pike Street, every first Thursday from 7.30 to 11 p.m., there's an open mic, January 4th and February 1st. And January 19th, from 7.30 to 9.30, Practical Anarchism author talk with Scott Branson and Dean Spade. At Pipsqueak, 173 16th Avenue, every first Sunday from 3 to 5 p.m., there's a prisoner letter writing. January 9th at 6.30, Block Cop City report back. January 21st, from 2 to 5 p.m., Gunshot Wound Treatment Training, and at Casa de Zolo, at 3418 Fremont Avenue North in Lazy Cow Bakery. February 24th at 7 p.m., there will be a benefit show for Casa de Zolo featuring Medellin, Sonora and Hambre, Skylar Ford, and the Legion of Peace. Want to list your cool show or benefit event for mutual aid, labor solidarity, prisoner support, or general anarchy? Contact Sabotage Noise Productions today. Their email is sabotagenoiseproductions at proton.me or find them on Instagram at sabotagenoiseproductions. And now it's time for our Radical News Roundup from other autonomous media organizations that we follow. Unicorn Riot is a decentralized, educational, 501c3, nonprofit media organization of journalists. Unicorn Riot engages and amplifies the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. They seek to enrich the public by transforming the narrative with accessible and non-commercial independent content. You can find the following articles on their website at unicornriot.ninja. December 4th. Activists speak out after Philly Thanksgiving Parade banner drops. December 5th. International solidarity fostered at the first ever World Congress for Climate Justice. December 5th. Blockade protest disrupts Raytheon at University of Arizona Tech Park. December 6th. Questions surround FBI informant charged with stabbing convicted cop Derek Chauvin. December 8th. Cambodian union leader Chim Sitar to remain in prison after court rejects appeal. December 8th. Film. An infamous precinct in ruins and a community organizing itself. 
December 13th, Palestine supporters rally outside Biden Shapiro fundraiser in Philly. December 14th, Eric King released from prison after nine plus years as political prisoner. December 14th, Camp Nenukasi, a beacon of hope to the unhoused, faces eviction. December 15th, American alternate reality of the Gaza genocide. December 20th, white vigilante denied release from jail while appealing murder conviction. December 21st, Standing Rock Tribe opposes new draft environmental impact statement on DAPL. December 25th, despite U.S. import ban, sugarcane cutters still face abuse in Dominican Republic. December 27th, Magasi Massacre. Israel kills over 100 civilians in Christmas Eve bombing. December 29th, from demolition plans to neighborhood ownership, East Phillips begins transformation of Roof Depot into a community haven. December 29th, Jane's Revenge activist pleads guilty in firebombing of anti-abortion group Wisconsin Family Action. January 2nd, African coup boots French colonizers, leaves power vacuums. January 3rd, contentious copper nickel mine gets permit approval from Minnesota Appeals Court. And January 3rd, Kendrick Lamar in Africa, Big Steppers Heritage Plug. It's going down and you're invited for what they sell it. We ain't buying, there is no running, there is no hiding, there's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center for anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements across so-called North America. Their mission is to provide a resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. You can find the following articles on their website at itsgoingdown.org. November 29th, Contending with the Present and Building a Future for Anti-Fascism in the Pacific Northwest. November 30th, Counterinsurgency, Israel and Serial Colonialism, Making Sense of the State's Strategy. December 2nd, The Two Decades of Subvirgin Riot Porn Jamboree. December 3rd, In Contempt Number 35, Repression Strikes Toronto-Palestinian Solidarity Activists, Community Rallies for Victor Portas. December 5th, Prisoners in Chiapas Show Solidarity with Palestine. December 7th, Pro-Israel billboard torn down by Palestine supporters in Houston. December 7th, activists are voicing concerns over Atlanta's proposed ski mask ban. December 8th, final straw, ongoing resistance to the Mountain Valley Pipeline. December 10th, this is America number 191. Shane Burley on the weaponization of anti-Semitism, resistance to war heats up. December 12th, report back on the Flood Philly for Gaza demonstration. December 12th, anarchist prisoner Eric King released to halfway house after 10 years. December 12th, Canadian Tire Fire No. 66, solidarity demonstrations and blockades spread, encampment defense. December 13th, the CIPOGEZ denounces narco-paramilitary groups and the state. December 14th, solidarity with Miguel Peralta and a local Chilan de Flores Megon. December 15th, Report back from noise demo at home of manager of bank funding Israeli arms supplier. December 16th, People's Park in Berkeley again under threat. December 16th, exploring the history of anarchist popular power in Uruguay and its lessons for today. December 17th, Radio Zapote denounces recent eviction attempt. December 18th, final straw. Updates on hashtag Stop Cop City 
and the fight against RICO charges. December 18th, Seattle, Washington, report back from shutdown Boeing. December 19th, Amazon construction site disrupted by pro-Palestine activists in Central Point, Oregon. December 19th, Feed the People, Eat the Rich group wearing Jeff Bezos masks ransacks Whole Foods. December 19th, report back from blockade the genocide action. December 20th, Call for solidarity with Mexican anarchist political prisoner Jorge York Esquibal. December 21st, Ending the Year Strong, report from the Central Valley of California. December 21st, Global Day of Action Against Elbit Systems, a report back on Houston Actionist blockade of BNY Mellon. December 21st, Demonstrators decry slap lawsuits targeting movement against Mountain Valley Pipeline. December 22nd, Agua de la Villa, Little Autonomous Community School, celebrates two-year anniversary. December 24th, Statement from Mexican Anarchist Prisoner Tiara Tempestad. December 26th, Report on Defense of Skull Squat in Brooklyn, New York. December 27th, Palestine Will Be Free, New Zine and Poster for Distribution. December 30th, Hunger Strike Launched at Red Onion State Prison in Virginia. December 31st, Olympia, Washington. Alfredo Bonanno Memorial. December 31st. Protest in Olympia. Washington shuts down Remax office for profiteering off Israeli apartheid. January 1st. Final straw. Eric King and Josh Davidson. January 2nd. Donate to support family of Klee Benali and beyond. January 2nd. In contempt number 36. Hunger strikes at Red Onion Prison and NWDC. Eric King released. January 4th. Anti-fascists in Ohio call for counter-demonstration against far-right rally on January 6th. January 4th, Hamilton New Year's Noise Demo Report Back 2023. January 4th, Noise Demos Ring in New Year as Repression Ramps Up. Crime Thought is everything that evades control. Crime Think is a rebel alliance. Crime Think is a banner for anonymous collective action. Crime Think is an international network of aspiring revolutionaries. CrimeThink is a desperate venture. Check out these articles at CrimeThink.com. December 12th. Don't stop. Continuing the fight against Cop City. Six more months in the movement to defend the forest. December 15th. Argentina. So-called neoliberalism and its false critics. Argentine anarchists on the election of Javier Millet. December 17th. Camera Action a film festival at the gathering of anarchist and anti-authoritarian practices against borders. December 19th, autonomous actions against Amazon in solidarity with Palestine, including a report back from Lacey Washington. December 19th, let's be done with waiting, a film in memory of Alfredo Maria Bonanno. December 29th, 2023, the year in review, a world on the brink. And finally, January 3rd, in memory of Klee Benali, an interview with Blackfire. We would like to take this time to give thanks for the many inspiring contributions, actions, and the legacy of indigenous anarchist and Diné artist Klee Benali, who started the Indigenous Action podcast here on the Channel Zero Network, and many, many other projects in his time on this earth. As the eulogy published by Anarchist Agency recounts, Klee was living in Flagstaff, Arizona at the time of his passing. He was born October 11, 1975, in Black Mesa, and worked nearly all his life at the front lines of struggles to protect indigenous sacred lands. Klee was a driven organizer with projects such as Indigenous Action Media, 
Kinlani Mutual Aid, and Indigenous Mutual Aid. He also helped establish the Tala Hogan Info Shop, Protect the Peaks, and Out of Your Backpack Media, and volunteered with Hall No. One of the contributions is the music that he made with his punk band Blackfire. So in honor of Klee and his remarkable claws out life, here is Blackfire with mean things happening in this world. Hit it! Look at the big one across the sea I'm sure that you'll agree There's mean things happening in this world I ain't got a crying time I'm that way all the time There's mean things happening in this world There's mean things happening in this world Peace in the streets. 
Welcome back to Molotov Now. We are joined today by Brian Bean, who co-edited the book Palestine, A Socialist Introduction. I'm going to read here from Hadass Thier, author of A People's Guide to Capitalism, about the book, when she said about the book, 10 powerful essays meticulously woven together by Sumaya Awad and Brian Bean combine rich political history with incisive analysis of the current conjuncture and struggle. The book provides an entry point for new activists to understand a conflict whose history has been so deliberately obfuscated alongside a rich well of analysis on complex political questions. Awad and Bean's book should be widely read and its socialist bottom-up vision of transformation acted upon. The book appears to be well-received, and we're excited to talk to Brian today in light of the ongoing war against Gaza. Brian, would you like to introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. I'm uh, Brian Bean, uh, related to the book that was just mentioned. Um, I'm currently based in Chicago. I organize with the Tempest Socialist Collective and am a co-founder and editor of Rampant Magazine. Well, I really appreciated the range of voices in the book. I think it did a great job laying out the history and weaving in the narratives of social liberation struggles throughout. It is unfortunate to see many of the failures and betrayals that have led to the current situation in Palestine laid out in such quick succession. I think the book's approach to the history is genuinely accessible and digestible. It gives the reader a firm footing to stand on as the chapters go on and the history is replaced with current actions and future strategizing. Was laying out a socialist path forward a key priority for the book? Yeah, it was definitely one of the main impetuses for the book itself um, for two reasons. The first is that since 2008, there has been a general radicalization, particularly around young people. Um, and there's been a couple of expressions of them. One is around organizing around Palestine, particularly on campus and the growth of SJPs. And the other was this sort of new socialist movement um, that came about from Occupy throughout. Um, and so part of the purpose of the book was to um, bring socialist ideas to the Palestine organizing crowd um, and to bring Palestine to the socialist crowd. And that reason is because U.S. support for Israel uh, that's oppressing the Palestinians 
Uh, what motivates that? And it is their capitalist interests in the region. And so one of the other arguments in the book is that you can't really imagine being able to really tackle fighting for liberation of Palestine without talking about tackling and taking on uh, capitalism regionally and even internationally. Vice versa, you can't talk about taking on and building a movement that can stand up to U.S. imperialism without being well-equipped to organize and to politically take on one of the central key planks of U.S. imperialism, which is its support for um, Israel's settler colonial state. And so the book kind of like carries that really centrally all throughout. Yeah, I think it gave a really comprehensive look at that history and that situation. I would hope that it's pretty well known to our audience that Israel, backed by the U.S., is committing a genocide against the Palestinian people. But for those who are completely new to the history of the conflict, can you give us a brief rundown of the situation of U.S. imperialism backing up the genocidal apartheid state of Israel historically and how that connects to what's going on today? Yeah, I mean, you could talk for a very long time about that question. But I think in brief, Israel is a a settler colonial state. And settler colonial states have always required the backing of imperialism because you're having a group of people, settlers, who are going to someone else's land and to take them. Um, And that requires military backing. And so the Zionist project um, in Palestine uh, has had the backing of various foreign powers since its inception. First, Britain, um, then briefly France. And then since really the mid-60s, the U.S. uh, has been the main guarantor and backer of the Zionist project. Um, And what motivates that is that the Middle East is a strategically uh, important region for capital. Uh, Capitalism's favorite uh, fuel, uh, oil, that makes all the profits come in, comes from the region, um, you know, largely. Um, And it is a strategically important for global trade, um, shipping through the Suez Canal, Straits of Hormuz, um, as well as um, finance, particularly recently, uh, Gulf finance has been a, a major player in just the circuits of financial capital internationally. And so to kind of secure that region as um, within kind of U.S. hegemony, um, they require a stable backer. Um, and they found in the 60s that a settler colonial state, because the many of the citizens in the state itself is then tied to their imperial backer, is a more uh, reliable um, uh, plank, uh, aircraft carrier, if you will, than the Arab states surrounding it, uh, because people there had movements that fought back against the dictators and um, uh, against U.S. imperialism there. And so I think what motivates um, the U.S.'s back for Israel is just that. Um, Netanyahu, the current um, president of uh, Israel, uh, called it uh, the great aircraft carrier of our two civilizations. Um, And so they're really explicit when they see it as this sort of watchdog of U.S. interests um, in the region, the the aircraft carrier that can make sure that it keeps the region in line um, and is more stable in their eyes um, to to U.S. interests. And so how that relates to what's going on right now is that, again, to secure that kind of hegemonic block of a, a, a economic zone that the U.S. has um, say in, kind of pulls most of the strings on, um, there's been a normalization process. And that really has gone back for, for decades, but under Trump, it began to escalate. So the normalization process is where um, they 
uh, Trump and then uh, Biden um, worked to have the regional Arab states develop uh, open political relationships with Israel and economic ties um, to be able to make the, the region itself uh, an, an economic zone that is a good business environment for Western capital. Uh, Tony Blair, the ex-British um, uh, prime minister, said that it, um, it makes the Middle East open for business. Um, and so what that has meant is that more normalization politically, economically, uh, joint military exercises with the Arab states surrounding uh, Israel means that the Palestinian people are left more and more out in the cold um, with less um, you know, regional support. That was mostly just lip service before, but then there's none. And so what that has meant is that the process of, of settler colonialism that began, you know, before, but in 1948 with the Nakba, in which um, thousands of Palestinians were ran off their land, there were massacres all throughout historic Palestine, that process of replacing the native indigenous population of Palestinians um, has been ongoing since that time. With normalization, that's basically been the green light for that process of settler colonialism, of ethnic cleansing of Palestinians to escalate. And so we have seen that since the normalization process um, kind of restarted under Trump. Biden has carried through with the exact same perspective as Trump. Um, and that has meant that um, over the past couple of years, there was a dramatic increase in uh, forced evictions of violence in the West Bank, of the, the bombing of Gaza um, in 2020. And I think that the, um, the current genocide happening in Gaza, and I think a very slow motion and escalating war on Palestinians in the West Bank is entirely greenlit by this normalization process, even though it's under under the pretense of what happened um, on October 7th. Thank you for that analysis. Uh, yeah, I was somewhat familiar with the post-1948 history, of course. I've been looking into the Palestine situation since at least uh, Ferguson, roughly. Um, but I was very interested in the pre-1948 history from the book, much of which I did not know. The idea that Zionism goes back that far was truly news to me. I think that it's crucial to talk about the idea that Zionism is rooted in pre-World War II nationalist mentalities that often mirrored the nationalist, fascist, and authoritarian regimes rising in Europe at the time. That history really helped me to separate the idea of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism for me. That and the deep roots in imperialism and colonialism, as you talk about, make it impossible to ignore the intents of the Zionist movement, which is to eradicate the indigenous Palestinian population. What is the most common misconception about Israel or Palestine that you encounter in people that you talk to about this stuff? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that the, I think there's, there's three that will be worth to note. The first is this conception that what's happening there is some centuries old conflict between people, some kind of disagreement between, um, you know, Israeli Jews and Palestinians. Um, and so kind of what you said in the book, just blowing that up, I think is really important that Zionism, the idea that it needs to be a Jewish only ethno state is a modern political ideology. It's not a specific um, religious tenet related to, to Judaism, um, but it is a specific political ideology. And that political ideology comes from a very, very pessimistic uh, outlook 
on how one fights anti-Semitism, particularly in Europe. And so the Zionists said, well, we actually can't fight anti-Semitism here, so we have to go somewhere else. Um, and then, uh, tragically, that somewhere else was somewhere else where someone else was living. Um, and so I think the first misconception is that that this whole issue is something that is a you know centuries-old conflict between people. And then I think the other component of that is um, about kind of what you said, that somehow, if you are anti-Zionist, you're anti-Semitic. And that old, tired adage is trotted out anytime anyone criticizes um, the actions of Israel. And I think it's just like, it's complete nonsense, but it's repeated over and over uh, despite that. And I think what's key about that is that uh, what that's rooted in is the notion of that there should be a Jewish-only ethnostate. And so the the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, which is one of the organizations in the United States that really presumes to fight anti-Semitism, but what it does is police speech around uh, criticizing of all of Israel's um, catalogs and catalogs of war crimes they've committed throughout the years. And the, the ADL says that, well, it's okay to criticize Israel as long as you don't question its right to exist as a Jewish-only ethnostate. And I think that's the key linchpin, too. It's like, do you think that there should be a state that is only for a certain ethnic group that is exclusionary of others? And I think it's like, no, I mean, Israel shouldn't exist <laughs> in, in the current setup that it is now, which is essentially an ethnostate. And that's why all these ties between the international far right, um, even though much of the international far right is, as you know, um, anti-Semitic, why they, they see Israel as uh, a positive thing. Even an example of someone like uh, Richard Spencer, they see, okay, well, then all the different communities can have their own um, ethnic states that can function to the exclusion of other people. But that same tired adage of to criticize Israel is to be anti-Semitic is one that you still encounter. And you encounter with with the current situation right now in ways that is like really disgusting in which people will say hey there's a genocide happening you know there's 10 20,000 palestinians being killed schools hospitals being leveled a huge percentage being women and children isn't that a problem and like literally people will say well i think that's kind of anti-semitic but i think at its root i think the main answer to that that i always say to people is like that if, if I were to say, who do you blame when an IDF soldier murders a Palestinian child? And I say, I blame the IDF. I blame the state of Israel. And people who say, well, to criticize Israel is to be anti-Semitic, they're actually the ones who are saying, no, it is the fault, if you will, of all Jewish people. And so in some ways, to even say that to criticize Israel is anti-Semitic is itself an anti-Semitic a position because it is saying that Israel represents all Jews all over the world with whatever action that it takes, which is mm. an absurd position. Um, yeah. But it's trotted out as though it was some sort of historical fact, and it's relied upon this false history. And that's one of the best things about this current moment and the the rise of social media and like even like leftist TikTok and hopefully books like ours is that. Uh, the, the Zionist kind of plans this piece. Someone says, well, what Israel's doing um, is unjust. And they'll say, well, it's a complicated history. 
But now people can just say, okay, well, I'm going to read the history. I'm going to look into it. And it, anyone who scratches the surface sees the crimes that Israel's carried out, see the process of settler colonialism, and they see a history that to anyone who has a soul and half a brain, see as one that is clearly one of the oppressor and the oppressed. Uh, that of the oppressor of the, the Zionist settler colonial project of Israel and the oppressed people of Palestine who lived there before. Yeah, thanks for breaking that down, because it is often confusing to see some of the most far-right anti-Semitic voices siding with the state of Israel sometimes, and so that's a good perspective on it, I think. What's the name? Um, I was going to make a comment about it, but I can't remember the guy's name. You might know who I'm talking about. <clears throat> they had a huge pro-Israel rally in D.C., I think it was, and one of the speakers that they had there, I forget his name, but he has he's a well-known hate preacher, an anti-Semitic hate preacher. Uh, one of his quotes being that Hitler was sent by God to send the Jews back to Israel or something. But uh, yeah, no, the fact they had that person at a rally to talk about anti-Semitism and needing to be pro-Israel in, in the current situation. Yeah, I don't remember his name, but all types of weirdos get trotted out in situations like that. Um, and in the in the U.S., um, Christian evangelical Zionists is actually one of the the fastest growing kind of facets of of Zionism. Um, as you see that a, a lot of particularly young Jews in the United States are breaking with Zionism, and I think evidence of that is all these like really inspiring protests that people and with uh, Jewish Voices for Peace have been doing all around the country about the current genocide in Gaza. And so it's an interesting sort of shift in who's, you know, really driving it uh, I'm here. And I think that that, that pro-Israel rally shows something else that's really grotesque about the whole political picture in which, yeah, they trot out this right-wing evangelist who is probably a just anti-Semite to the core. And yet, leading Democratic Party politicians like Chuck Schumer also spoke at it. And so you see that the support for the most racist state in the world, uh, Israel, has been one that has had the most bipartisan consensus um, going back decades. I think that is speaks to why Israel is a key plank of the imperial project of the United States um, and that that disentangling um, requires, I think, greater um, greater political projects than just that of human rights, which how liberals take it up, as opposed to seeing it as a project that cuts to the core of, of U.S. capitalism, the U.S. imperial project, and the U.S. state. Yeah, that gets to my next question, I think. One thing that struck me while reading the book was the cycle of disappointing, quote-unquote, leadership organizations of the Palestinian liberation movement over the many years it's been occupied. Time and time again, it seemed like the leaders and elites conspired to destroy any real radical vision of liberation. With so many rounds of failure at getting a political party on board with social revolution in Palestine and elsewhere. Do you think it's important to be organizing outside of political parties, both inside and outside of Palestine? I'll talk about inside Palestine first. And so I think the important thing to know about political parties inside Palestine is that they're not political parties of the electoral bent that we have here. They wound up um, engaging in elections um, after the Oslo process. But the political parties, oftentimes called factions, are different political groupings that have carried out the resistance movement largely under the umbrella of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. And so the electoral shift has something that's happened after the Oslo Accords. 
But as you mentioned, that there's been a lot of missteps and uh, some decisions that have been made that I think have put the Palestinian movement in a difficult situation. And I think there's always things to learn about that. I think the other key component of that is that the missteps that were made also came under the intensity of Israeli reaction. And so it's not just that political decisions were made that could have been done otherwise. Obviously, it could have been done otherwise. But the other part of the, the, the situation is under a very strong duress. But I think that that all came to a head with the Oslo Accords, the Oslo process, um, in which the end of the first intifada began to get wrapped up with basically these negotiations that created the Palestinian National Authority. And that created the situation here in which you have certain sections of historic Palestine that are under very, very little amounts of administrative control by Palestinians. So the West Bank, Gaza. And so what Oslo did was it basically, and this was an explicit point of Oslo on behalf of the US and Israel, it moved to defang the Palestinian resistance. So stop resisting, um, stop fighting for for your liberation for one um, democratic state with secular rights for all. But here is your little mini state that you don't actually have much control over, that you don't draw the taxes for, that you don't control the borders, that you don't control your own, your own security. And as we see now, Israel enters militarily all the time. And then many of the political parties wound up basically having to be an administer of these regions that wound up with the conclusion being that certain of the political parties, Fatah mostly, which has been most core in, in the PA, wound up being a, a partner with Israel in managing the occupation. And so people's uh, general feel about the parties, uh, there's been a mass disillusion with them because this uh, promise of a so-called state uh, did not come to pass. And the situation has, in some ways, gotten worse. And so outside of parties is a process that's currently happening right now. So the, the, the dissatisfaction with Oslo resulted in the second intifada. Um, the second intifada was crushed very violently with full-scale military attacks by Israel and the West Bank. And then you began to see uh, activity, resistance activity that came outside of the current political parties or factions. And that reached its highest point um, in 2020 with the Unity Intifada, in which youth uh, in East Jerusalem uh, began to uh, militantly try to resist a course of uh, forcible evictions that settlers uh, backed with the, the force of the Israeli state were trying to carry out, as well as trying to push back against restrictions that Israel was trying to put on the Al-Aqsa mosque complex. And that exploded, uh, in which you saw demonstrations all over East Jerusalem. You saw a general strike being called all over historic Palestine, so both in the West Bank and in the 1948 territories, and Palestinians in the 48 territories, uh, so many of which who are uh, citizens of Israel, rose up in an uprising. The city of Lid, the Palestinians basically took it back over, tore down the Israeli flag, ran up the Palestinian flag, and it was like a general, uh, general uprising across all of historic Palestine, not just the West Bank, but all of historic Palestine. And a lot of the commentators at that time uh, talked about how people were moving beyond the parties uh, because the parties gave no path forward 
as far as how to achieve liberation. And I think that right now, in this current juncture, you see that again. Um, and so Gaza is under um, intense you know, genocidal bombing by Israel. So the, the resistance there is carried out primarily through military means. But in the West Bank, since October 7th, same thing before. You have people who are engaging in all sorts of different resistance acts. Everything from armed resistance to boycotts, mass marches, whatever it takes. And and all this is, again, beyond the, the political parties. Part of the main actors that engage in the armed resistance in the West Bank are these brigades that sometimes you'll see in, in, in the news. In Nablus and Janine, particularly, these brigades, which are these armed resistance groups that are non-sectarian, so different than, than times in the past in which each of the different political parties or political factions would have their own armed wings. These are non-sectarian, so it includes individuals who are part of the different factions. But it's not like it's a coalition of the factions of the political parties. It's people from below who are joining together to have a self-defense of the increasingly militarized Israeli attacks on the refugee camps in the West Banks and the cities, and the basically arming of settlers to take people's land in the West Bank that is a veritable army. Like they're literally handing out assault rifles to, to folks and, and, and taking people's land. And so the Palestinian resistance right now is beyond the parties. I think the question is what you do with that, what vessel, what vehicle, what political program, if you will, can be a part of that to, to think about what's the step between now and liberation. But that's kind of where the current a struggle is there. Yeah, that's inspiring as hell. Yeah. So coming back to this idea of whether or not to organize inside of or outside of political parties, at least when it comes to the U.S. and Western nations, I know that locally one of our legislators have spent over 30 percent of their campaign funds towards support for Israel, but they have not formally disclosed this to constituents when voting on the issues. Given that this is happening with various uh, political offices across the nation and other nations as well, what value would you say our organizing electorally have to those living in Palestine now? Hmm. Um, good question. So I think that um, uh, running in elections is a tactic that has a certain utility. Uh, that being said, I think it's a lower form of struggle than other forms of struggle, because I think that we should have no illusions that um, we're going to elect in liberation. But as a, as a tactic, it sometimes has utility. But there's a big but there. And I think the big but is that there are certain sections of the socialist movement that see a strategy of running within the Democratic Party as some way to build the movement. And I think that is a profound dead end. Um, and I think that's a profound dead end because you're running a, a socialist candidate or someone who is for Palestine in a party that is the uh, probably the most powerful capitalist party in the world. Democratic Party is the oldest political party in the world. So they've been through it. And the question of support of Israel isn't a secondhand plank for them, but it is a central plank in the maintenance of U.S. imperialism. And so that isn't going to be tricked out of them or won in a Democratic Party caucus or anything like that. And I think that the tragedy of that is that um, you see that manifest in 
the various uh, socialists uh, who have won office in mostly the House of Representatives and the Senate, the like so-called squad, who, you know, have done some good things. I think Rashida Tlaib has been one of the more principled ones, but they have been completely inconsistent on the question of imperialism in Palestine specifically. Um, right now, I think they are doing a good thing by kind of pushing for this ceasefire resolution that has raised the question in an interesting way. But I think that we should be aware that many of them, including Jamal Bowman and Ilhan Omar, voted for the $4.3 billion of arms that Israel is currently using to murder Palestinians. And so that contradiction that they can be for a ceasefire, but also vote for funding the, the, the Zionist state is a contradiction that you're going to have if you try to leverage your organizing energy to running in a capitalist party. And I think that the 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 most cautionary example of that, um, I think, is Bernie Sanders. People were very excited by Bernie Sanders. He was the so-called savior of the socialist movement. He was bringing socialist ideas to all these people. And I think there's some positive things that people engage with the ideas, people consider themselves socialists, began to read and organize and all that stuff. But I think his behavior now among the, the current genocide is quite scandalous in which he is very militantly backing Biden's line of this bullshit humanitarian pause as opposed to ceasefire. Like humanitarian pause is some neologism that has been cooked up by Biden and Netanyahu to uh, try to put some kind of gloss on the horrible genocide that's happening. It's just the very fact that Sanders continues to argue not for ceasefire, which is the floor. Like ceasefires, you're not going to get liberation of Palestine. Ceasefire, the conditions that led to the situation isn't going to change at all. But it's the floor just to stop the immediacy of the genocide that's happening right now. And the fact that this person who is the, you know, the the lion of of the socialist movement, the person that people were looking for. Um, is walking in lockstep with Biden is grotesque. And it should be a warning to those who think that we can run socialist, leftist, pro-Palestinian candidates in the Democratic Party. It's something that like, you know, Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, who is not someone that has any kind of radical stripe, is to the left in some ways of Bernie Sanders because he backs ceasefire. So these contradictions are not ones that are the result of bad decisions, by the results of a strategy of running in a capitalist party electorally. And so, you know, elections have a utility. Sometimes they can help to count our forces to maybe get a reform, but they're a lower form of struggle and engaging in them through the Democratic Party is a complete historical dead end, has been, and it will be. I fully agree. <laughs> One inspiring tactic and successful tactic from what I can tell that I've seen has definitely been uh, the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, or BDS. But there must be other ways, other direct actions we can take against the apartheid state of Israel. Block the Boat has been seeing varying levels of success at physically preventing military cargo from making its way to Israel. A recent blockade in Oakland was successful, but when the boat arrived in Tacoma, the military stepped in to load it themselves when the Union refused to do so. Despite thousands showing up and being ready to stay for days, despite local indigenous tribes showing up in traditional canoes to block the boat from leaving the port, 
Reports we have heard were a disappointing lack of communications from organizers and internal peace policing and a hampering of people's ability to go above and beyond what the main organizers were willing or comfortable to do. People are also taking more autonomous actions against U.S. manufacturers and investors who do business with or for Israel. The level of autonomy in these types of actions may prove them to be more successful than large organized marches or demonstrations. What are your thoughts on the most effective tactics for leftists outside of Palestine in this moment? Yeah, I think um, in talking about this, it's important to start with BDS because BDS since 2005 has been the strategy, the tactic that Palestinian civil society has asked for people outside of Palestine to do. And, you know, it's been quite successful, particularly outside the United States. The United States has been mostly something that's been constrained on the campuses with a little blip in 2020. But I think what that looks like can look like some of the stuff that you've described as well. And I think that I've followed the the block the boats, both in Tacoma and in Oakland. And I think they're tremendously inspiring and exactly the kind of thing that you want to do. Um, and I think that kind of jives with the fact that particularly in a moment like this, where there's the uh, dramatic immediacy of stopping genocide. I think people taking part in whatever they can to just disrupt business as usual, to put pressure on politicians, sure, but also to put pressure on weapons manufacturers and the whole bevy of corporations who profit from Israel's occupation is, I think, an important thing to do. I think, you know, weapons manufacturers and the loading of ships in the UK there's been a lot of direct action at arms manufacturers who who build arms that go to Israel that I think have been really um, inspiring, and so stopping that process through direct action I think is a is a positive thing. I think there will always be a place for a mass march because it's how people's consciousness changes, it's how you, you can count your your your, your forces, um, and it allows for people who have a, a lower bar of what they can do to participate in a meaningful way. And I think some of the, some of the mass marches, if you've done it right, can be very disruptive. And so we had a, a demonstration, a mass demonstration uh, last Friday during Black Friday. And just the, the sheer amount of people that were flooding through the Magnificent Mile, the big kind of posh shopping district, basically shut down a number of the stores in a way that small teams who are doing direct action wouldn't be able to. And so I think that, you know, this moment required all types of variety of tactics. And I think everything from, you know, mass marches to uh, direct action are what is required. I think the important thing to know for me is that in the end, I think that if we're actually going to change the status quo, that the target has to be the U.S. state, because building uh, against corporations and stopping some of the flows of, of, of arms and those sorts of things are really helpful for putting pressure on the state um, and are really helpful for building the movement and raising awareness. But at the end, the U.S. capitalist class, probably the most powerful ruling class in the world, is really invested in maintaining its important strategic relationship with Israel. So I think whatever we can do is really important to disrupt the process, to put heat, to make it harder for them to make money, to raise awareness and all those sorts of things. But I think in the end, the question is kind of taking on the state will be key and seeing that, you know, if we're going to build a movement to combat U.S. imperialism, 
then we're going to have to take on the state. And so I think that level of unrest, that level of antagonism and, and sort of of a revolutionary type, I think, is what would in the end be required to pose an actual significant challenge to U.S. imperialism. So how we get there, that's the that's the more complicated piece. But I think being clear on the goals and what is required and what the horizon is, is one point. And then to talk about the specific strategic decisions and all this sorts of stuff. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things happening. That's a positive thing, as long as it continues to push and escalate in meaningful ways. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. I think it's really important to bring up that connection between any movement that's going to be in support of Palestinian liberation needs to be inherently anti-state. And any movement that's anti-state should be inherently in favor of Palestinian liberation. I also think I really appreciate you bringing up that the BDS movement is specifically what Palestinian civil society has been calling for, because I think it's really important that we listen to their voices when we determine what we're going to do here at home. And now for a second song by Dene artist Klee Benali, Rest in Power. Here is Song of the Sun. Hit it. Hardly buried, saying leave 
support towards Palestine because oppressions against queer people in, in various Middle East countries. And I think that despite the complexities, it is incumbent upon revolutionaries to show solidarity with struggles, even when the on-the-ground details are complex and multi-layered. These struggles always intersect, and we shouldn't deny the women and queer communities our solidarity just because they live in a patriarchal society. This is, in fact, why we need to fight even harder for the liberation of Palestine. There is no other solution to the gender oppressed around the world uh, than total liberation. Are there struggles that are unique to the gender oppressed within Palestine as opposed to that faced by all Palestinians? For example, countering the pinkwashed propaganda that Israel puts out about how backwards the Arabs are compared to them? Yeah, I think I think the main answer to the question, like, are there struggles that are unique to the gender oppressed within Palestine? The, the main answer to that is that there's not something that's unique to Palestine that's not everywhere else. I think people of varying genders and sexualities uh, face various degrees of oppression everywhere, unfortunately, in this, you know, unrealized world. And so I think that the most important thing to say is like, well, there's nothing that's like, that's like super special for Palestine. But I think that the next thing you say is exactly what you also begin to say, which is the, the extension of that, that it is similar to other places has to come up against uh, pinkwashing. So you mentioned that. And so yeah, pinkwashing is basically an explicit Israeli government practice to depict Israel as um, a LGBTQ Mecca, particularly in contradistinction with the surrounding countries that they depict as completely backwards and harsh and homophobic. And that is one element of their human relations campaign, their, their propaganda campaign that they depict in other ways. So the other one is there's also greenwashing. So depicting Israel as some uh, progressive advancement in green technology in contradistinction with the uh, sort of petro um, states of, of the Gulf. The other one that I think it's often repeated is that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, like that sort of nonsense. Um, but I think on the question of, of, of gender, I think it's it's just to poke holes in that and to expose how bullshit it is. And Israel does that itself. And so with Netanyahu's recent government, the minister of finance, uh, Bezalel Smotrich, is one of the group of far-right, ultra-Zionist extremists that are in the government. And Bezalel Smotrich explicitly said, I'm a fascist and a homophobe. Like, that's a direct quote. That's like not me like putting words in his mouth. 
And so the the ultra-nationalist settler organizations that have been on the rise in Israel because of its rightward trajectory, because of it being a settler colonial state, are not, you know, progressive and cool with LGBTQ and queer folks. And so that's one level of it. It's like there's a veneer um, that is more and more coming off. I think the other component of it is just to expose that people need to live to be able to express their gender identity and their sexuality. And so, like, yes, various places in the West Bank, like other places, um, there are queer people who um, don't feel like, you know, they, like they want something different. And there's organizations that advocate for that. Al Calls is mentioned in the book. Um, there's a feminist movement. Uh, the Talat that basically is uh, against um, uh, gender-based violence. And so there's movements there that are fighting for those things. But you can't have a, a, a movement to better the specific oppressions that you face um, under occupation. Um, you can't do that under genocide. And so I think the main gist of what is unique is just the fact that folks can't engage in the social movements to be able to fight for a more progressive world wherever they are if you are fenced in you have no autonomy you know they under the threat of bombs and arrests at every corner and so i think that contradiction is is something that i think is becoming harder and harder for israel to hold on to because you know because they have a really vibrant pride festival in tel aviv looks different when there are thousands upon thousands of women who are being destroyed, uh, who are being murdered in Gaza by, by, by Israel. Yeah, I think that idea that there's nothing special or unique about the oppressed within Palestine, that they're just like all of us, is beautifully humanizing. Uh, the book does a really great job of dealing with the various intersecting struggles that make up the conflict in Palestine. A major focus for the book is that of the solidarity between Black and Palestinian liberation fighters. I remember personally the first time I really considered the connections between the two was during the Ferguson Rebellion, when the two conflicts, the bombing of Gaza at the time and the rebellion in Missouri, were co-occurring. It was more than obvious the parallels and even material connections between the two. What do you think that we fighting for by Pac liberation here in the Imperial Corps can learn from the people of Palestine's struggle historically and its connections with the Black Liberation Movement. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be too prescriptive to folks fighting against anti-Black racism here um, from, from my position, but I definitely think that one of the things that's inspired those connections, you mentioned um, Ferguson, the author of the chapter in the book, um, started a group called Black for Palestine. It started after after Ferguson. And so seeing the connections of struggle being international, I think is one important lesson. I think seeing that the capitalist class, the ruling class, those who oppress people are internationally organized. Uh, and so the, the question of the police is uh, probably the, one of the most obvious ones in which Israel... Um, basically exports itself as a security expert, as having the best technology, the best training, the best tactics, the best cybersecurity that all of the world's police forces that are usually used to oppress minorities and people of color comes from being field tested on Palestinians through the illegal occupation 
of, of Palestine. And so the international connections the ruling class make. And so it only is going to better our movement to make those connections as well. And I think that that connection has been one that has gone back quite a while in the black freedom struggle, which is the second part of your question. Um, and I think that it is seeing the international dynamics of colonialism and seeing uh, being inspired both ways by, by, by fighting against it. And so in 1957, Martin Luther King, after the Montgomery bus boycott, um, went to Ghana, where Kwame Nkrumah had kicked out the British, and he was tremendously inspired. Um, he came back and said that he cried tears of joy when the Union Jack was was lowered. And he 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 came back and said that Ghana tells us that the forces of the universe are on the side of justice, an old order of colonialism, the segregation, discrimination is passing away now. And a new order of justice, freedom, and goodwill is being born. Um, and it was the first time that King like publicly proclaimed his like cry of freedom free at last. And so he was tremendously inspired by the anti-colonial struggles that swept through Africa at that time period. He said, oh, Here's an example of people who are fighting back against um, colonial oppression and seeing similarities with the, the anti-black uh, racist regime in the United States. Malcolm X is another one. The same year, in 57, he was organizing meetings with various leaders of these uh, anti-colonial movements, particularly in, um, in, in Africa, and seeing them as inspiring ones. Um, in 60, I forget exactly the, the year, 64, he wrote... Um, an article called Zionist Logic, um, in which he talked about the problems of Zionism very early compared to other um, components of sort of the U.S. left milieu. And again, seeing the, 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 the parallels and the similarities between an international struggle against colonialism. Malcolm X was very inspired by the Bandung Conference. Um, he was like, oh, here is a new international, people struggling from below, largely from the global south. And so I want to sort of do that here. And so the, the inspirations of internationalism, I think, is one of the facets that is those connections between the struggle against anti-Black racism here and the struggle uh, for Palestine there. And, you know, there's a lot of examples of how that connection has played out. But I think the main lesson is just that, like, the the things we fight are not particularly to our countries. So building an international movement to oppose the ruling class and the racists wherever they are is something that is essential because they're organized um, in that way. And so we need to as well. Those are some wonderful examples. I know the international drive of the book is clear throughout its read. I think it's important to think internationally as we look for struggles to find solidarity with under capitalism. But for us as anarchists, we see a vision of a world without states, without classes, and without oppression of any kind. Is there any ways that the socialist vision for a liberated Palestine differ from the anarchist vision? And if so, how might that look? I mean, I think that depends on which socialist you ask. <laughs> I mean, in speaking for myself, I think that uh, the thing that we're fighting for is a classless society in which there is no need for a state. I think that's the goal. And I think that how we get there is is the challenge. I think some socialists don't think that. Some socialists think that we'll have a state that will help manage capitalism or the mixed economies of Scandinavia and all that sorts of stuff. Um, but I think that those socialists, you know, misunderstand the liberatory project of 
of Marx and um, someone like Lenin that saw the need to um, to smash the state as being a precursor for the struggle for socialism. And, you know, we could probably go back and forth about what that means and how that's carried out and different strategies um, and perspectives from various currents of anarchism and anarcho-communism and socialists. But I think in the end, what is the shared, which I think is who the good socialists are and from anarchists is that, yes, we in the end think that getting rid of capitalism internationally requires getting rid of states and having a classless society, you know, for each according to their needs and by each according to their ability to, to, to quote Marx. Hell yeah, comrade. <laughs> One thing that I couldn't get a handle on was if the book was trying to make the argument that the people of Palestine needed the support of the region's leadership, the nations of the Arab world, or rather that the people of Palestine should realize that they don't need and will never get this support and should instead focus on finding solidarity with other working classes around the world. Do you feel it's necessary to have a strong state in order to have a successful socialist revolution? Yeah, so I think to answer the question that it's not about the state per se, but it's getting at the question of where the Palestinians draw their support. Um, and so in the book, it refers to a sort of old slogan of the Palestinian liberation movement that the road to Jerusalem goes through Cairo, Damascus, and Amman. Um, and what that's talking about, it's, it's often attributed to um, one of the theoreticians of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, George Habash. But what it's talking about is that in order to liberate Palestine, a couple things need to occur. First is that there needs to be resistance within Palestine. And that's obvious. Palestinians will resist. They have resisted. Their steadfast resistance is one of the most inspiring struggles, I think, internationally. And the very fact that if you go to any demonstration that you see a Palestinian flag, that in some ways the Palestinian flag is like the flag of solidarity, is a testament to the struggle and the heroism that those folks have undergone. However, the other component of that is that part of the argument about what is required for Palestinian liberation is that Palestinians within the structures of the current um, Israeli state and suppression will not be able to free themselves trapped in around the regimes that are surrounding them and with the back end of the U.S. So what would change that status quo? What would change that framework? And what that kind of argument is that in order to achieve Palestinian liberation, it requires Arab revolt and revolution throughout the region. And so that's not the, the states as themselves. They have shown they do not back the Palestinian people with any more than lip service. But why do they give lip service? And that's because the call to Palestine is one of the, the most powerful kind of causes across the Arab world. The reason why is because it is the kind of clearest, sharpest example of Western imperialism interfering in and holding dominion over people in the region in which Israel is that thing. People see what happened in the Nakba. People see the ongoing stuff. People see the United States backing them. And so people are uh, opposing the, the various foreign um, interventions economically, backing up the various uh, despots across the region, and see Palestine as the keyest example of that. And so 
when there's demonstrations, and I think people, you've probably seen them, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands in Yemen and in Jordan who come to the streets to demonstrate in solidarity with Palestine. And yet the Arab countries do nothing. And so they have to give lip service. So in the past, they have said that they would negotiate this or that. You know, Qatar is is trying to negotiate this current kind of pause and in, in, in hostilities and trying to do all that, but they haven't. Um, the other jailer of the Palestinians um, is is Egypt. So the Rafah border crossing, one of the two crossings into Gaza. One is, of course, controlled by Israel in the north. The other one is controlled by the Egyptians. So al-Sisi, a dictator and a despot, is the other jailer of the Palestinians. Uh, during the early days, right after October 7th, um, demonstrators in Jordan tried to to go to get through into to Palestine, and it was the Jordanian police who stopped them. So these examples are in which that the the countries in the region, because they have been economically integrated into global imperialism, and many of them are staunchly backed by the U.S. I mean, Egypt and Jordan particularly. The Saudis, of course, um, receive uh, huge amounts of military aid and. The, the the backing of of uh, of the U.S. to the point where they can openly assassinate a journalist um, Jamal Khashoggi and chop his body up and do it in flaunting basically in front of the entire world and Biden still gives him a fist bump when he goes and visits him and so what this argument is is that the the people in Palestine will to get their liberation um, will require an uprising of the Arab working class who see really clearly what Israel is and what it represents, and also see the complicity in their own regimes in the structures that most sharply oppress Palestinians, but oppress themselves. They see that connection. And so in the book where we talk about this, this slogan and this cause that Palestinians require regional uh, support, but it's not the support of the states, of the rulers, of the despots backed by the US and global capital, but the support of the, the so-called Arab street, the Arab working class that sees the calls of Palestine and that it often has been a tremendous kind of rallying cry. And so just one example of that that I like to always talk about is during the Egyptian revolution in 2011. So you want to talk about kind of the horizon, the scope of what this looks like, because it can seem really abstract, but this example makes it really concrete. So when Mubarak fell, um, in 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 the the early months of 2011, the uh, revolutionaries uh, basically ransacked the Israeli embassy. They took the various secret files detailing the links and the interconnections between Israel and Mubarak, and literally dumped them out the window. The Israeli ambassador had to flee the country, and really briefly, the Rafah border crossing was opened by the Egyptian revolution. That moment was closed. Counter-revolution came in. Egypt is a whole other story. But as far as what would upset the balance, the very tenuous balance that just means the complete immiseration of Palestinians, like imagine if there was a revolution in Egypt, the Rafa border crossing was open. Completely different situation. Imagine if the border with Jordan was not policed. Imagine if there's all these sorts of things that you could imagine changing kind of the current status quo that sets up Palestinians to uh, be so isolated and they continue to fight. But that, that fight and that struggle within Palestine also requires 
regional revolts and revolutions of the, the Arab working class against their own regimes, who are their own kind of partners of, of U.S. imperialism in their own right. Well, thank you for coming on in the show today. This has been a really insightful look at your book, Palestine, A Socialist Introduction. Before we go, I would ask one last thing. For those who still insist that history began on October 7th, what would you like to say to them and what would you like them to do uh, following up with that information? Well, they can read the book. (laughs) I mean, I think that one thing that exposes this is after October 7th, a couple of Israeli politicians in describing what they were going to do in Gaza said that they were going to finish the Nakba. That was the words that they used, finish the Nakba. And since then, uh, in the almost two months since the, the, the genocide began, more Palestinians have been killed in Gaza than in the Nakba in 1948. And the Nakba is, of course, the Arabic word for the catastrophe, which is when the Zionist militias um, under uh, Plan Dalit pushed Palestinians out of their villages, um, massacred many in order to secure the Jewish-only ethnostate of Israel. And so I mentioned that because politicians, Israeli politicians said, I'm going to finish the Nakba, which is interesting because before October 7th, it is actually illegal to talk about the Nakba within 1948 Israel. Nakba memorials are not allowed, are broken up by the police. Textbooks aren't allowed to have it. And people who've tried to talk about it um, publicly, professors and whatnot, are basically banned. And so even the memory of uh, the catastrophe of what um, anyone who has any kind of knowledge of international law can clearly call ethnic cleansing was not allowed to be talked about. They tried to erase the memory of the thing that happened. And so what does it mean that now they're utilizing this term that before they tried to erase and I think they're utilizing it because the open, um, the open project of ethnic cleansing, of the elimination, expulsion, and the erasure of the memory of Palestinians is the overt motivating force of Israel right now. And so the fact that they will use that term, the Nakba, that they were perhaps scared of before, shows how brazen their violence is. And so I think that kind of a descriptor hopefully can get people to think about the things that came before the the various um, war crimes, the fact that pretty much the entire occupation is considered illegal by international law, and read the history that's there. And as far as what people can do about it, I think now is the time to get involved in whatever way that you can, because this is I mean, in the 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 horrors of, of late capitalism, there's a lot of horrible things in the world and atrocities and injustices. But I think that the open slaughter of innocent people who have nowhere to go probably has no historical comparison back till maybe the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and back to the, the crimes of the, the Holocaust and World War II. And so I think right now, many of us are living through, you know, the worst humanitarian issue that we have experienced in our lives. And in that moment of history, I think the question is, what did you do about it? Um, When we look back at something that we were reminded, where we remembered 
as a bleak and dark time, I want people to think about what were you doing to stop it at that point in time? And answering that question is based on what one's able to do and was willing to do, but you need to answer it in the affirmative. And so in in doing something to, to stop it, you know, take part in the the demonstrations, take part in um, trying to bring about ceasefire, but do that knowing that even if there is a ceasefire, the conditions that led to this are not going to go away. And the, what is needed is to revitalize the BDS movement, to revitalize taking on the corporations, the states, the weapons manufacturers that profit from the illegal occupation. And that can be as maximal as doing a direct action to shut down a weapons corporation. It can be as minimal as passing a statement in your your church. I think there's so many ways to plug in, which is part of the, the kind of positive flexibility of BDS. And so take it where you will, but get engaged and push it and make sure that we continue to organize, even if um, a ceasefire is to come about because the conditions aren't going to change. And Israel is clear that it wants the full annexation of all of historic Palestine. Yeah, I think one of the most important things that we can do, and one thing that I know f- for myself has given me a lot of empowerment around the issue is learning this history and mm-hmm. reading books like yours and getting familiar with the situation so that we can just continuously be talking about Palestine and ha- and feel like we're on a good footing and this is something I know about, this is something I've read about, we can bring it up in in all our, our social situations and our social circles here at home and be talking about it from a place that we have confidence in. So I think that, like you said, getting involved in in whatever aspect of struggle makes sense for you and your situation, but also learning the history. And mm-hmm. a part of what Israel is really trying to do, like you said, is erase that history and not never talk about it. So I think just your writing that book is really powerful. And anytime anyone can read a book like that is also powerful because it gives them the tools that they need to be able to just talk about this situation. And that could be the first step a lot of times into feeling out, you know, who around you, where does everyone stand around you on this situation? And who, who do you need to do some like education on? I think it's just a really good idea to, to learn those histories even though they might not be ours directly, because it does give you such an empowerment when you're talking about it with other people. Totally. And I think especially as as people who live in the American state, too, it's like there's a lot of different struggles that we should be knowledgeable in. But the the government that we probably, unfortunately, pay tax dollars to is the chief guarantor and backer of this most racist state in the world. And so that while the U.S. has a kind of special relationship with Israel, I think that's why people who live in this country have a special responsibility to understand that dynamic and to be vocal about that dynamic because it's the government that lords over us that is the the chief perpetrator and backer of that internationally. So that there's, a, there's a responsibility that we have here to, like you said, know what's going on and just don't stop talking about Palestine. Yeah, I've seen a lot of really inspirational stuff coming from other countries, and I hope that U.S. radicals can step their game up to meet that demand. I can't tell you how much we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today about this really important stuff. I hope that our conversation can be useful and 
informative to people and play some small part in this conversation. Thanks, comrades. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Molotov Now. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. Our goal with the podcast is to reach out beyond our boundaries and connect the happenings in our small town with the struggles going on in major urban centers. We want to talk to you if you're a big city organizer. We think we have a lot you can learn from, and we know you have much to teach us. If you would like to come on the show, please email us at sabo underscore media at riseup.net with the header Molotov Now, and we will be in touch about setting up an interview and crafting an episode to feature you. Don't forget, if you like what we do here and want to support it, you can do that by going to linktree backslash AO1312 and clicking donate or scrolling to the bottom for Patreon. Thank you. We want to give a shout out to our friends at the South Florida Anti-Repression Committee who have launched a solidarity campaign for two individuals facing 12 years for an alleged graffiti attack on a fake Christian anti-choice clinic that does not provide any reproductive care. This federal overreach and use of the FACE Act an act meant to protect people visiting reproductive clinics from harassment is unprecedented. To support this solidarity campaign, please visit bit.ly backslash free our fighters. We would like to thank the Black Flower Collective for their continued support and wish them luck in their fundraising efforts. To support them or learn more about their project, their website is blackflowercollective.noblogs.org. Collectiva, the anarchist Mastodon server, is growing faster than ever, thanks to Elon Musk's stupidity, as many activists are closing their accounts for bluer skies, as can be seen in the fluctuation of followers over on IGD's socials. Join at collectiva.social and follow us and other online activists on the decentralized federated internet. Shehalish River Mutual Aid Network is hosting a fundraiser for their weekly meals with Food Not Bombs. To donate, visit linktree backslash crmutualaidnet. The Communique is looking for artists and upcoming event submissions. Please write to sabo underscore media at riseup.net to submit your entry. We would also like to say thank you to Pixel Passionate for producing our soundtrack. Please check out their website at www.radicalpraxisclothing.com and check out their portfolio in our show notes. And of course, thank you to the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. We are proud to be members of a network that creates and shares leading critical analysis, news, and actions from an anarchist perspective. Remember to check out Sabo Media's website for new episodes, articles, comics, and columns. We have new content all the time. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe on your favorite corporate data mining platform of choice, and go ahead and make the switch to federated social media on the Collectiva Mastodon server today. At Aberdeen Local 1312 for updates on Sabo Media projects such as the Harbor Rat Report, the Communique, the Sabo Tours, our podcast Molotov Now, and many other upcoming projects. That's all for tonight. Please remember to spay and neuter your cats, and don't forget to cast your votes at those who deserve them. Solidarity, comrades. This is Molotov Now, signing off. Go, 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 go.